Now, what is the flip side? Well, the flip side that we're going to look at for the next four weeks, this series, is we're going to be looking at the, the places in our lives and in Scripture where there are two coexisting realities. Okay, let me give you some specific examples. These will be on the screen so you can read along with me in case I talk really fast. Um, the, the forecast yesterday for Saturday at my house was a 30% chance of rain, but it was 75 and sunny on Saturday. So those are two coexisting realities, right? The forecast, which this is true, the forecast was 30% chance of rain, but it was 75 and sunny on Saturday. Just on the side of your little soapbox, I'm not really sure what weathermen do for a living because I don't feel like they're ever close. They're like, there is a 30% chance of snow. Hottest day of the year. I, don't, I'm, I can't figure it out. But anyway, okay, second, second flip side type statement here, okay? And, and here's what this would look like. Um, my work is only 17 miles from my house. Yet, it takes me almost one hour to get to work in the morning sometimes, right? So those are two coexisting true statements right there, right? So yeah, only 10 miles, I think 17, I'm not sure why it says 10, I'm the typo guy there. 17 miles from my house, yet it takes me an hour. Those are two coexisting realities. Here's the third one. The third one is that I am selling my car for $3,200, not $32,000. That tells you what kind of sweet ride I'm driving around in, all right? $3,200. Nevertheless, no one wants to pay more than $2,500 for my car right now. And I'm kind of holding out for $3,200. So those are two coexisting true statements. I've listed my car for $3,200. It's a 97 Volvo 960, if you know anyone that's in the market. Okay? 115,000 miles. Beauty. All right. Nevertheless, no one wants to pay more than $2,500. Two coexisting realities... All of these contain a reality on the left side of the sentence, right? Then there's some type of transition word. There's a a, a but, a yet, a nevertheless. And then after the transition, there is a greater reality. And why do I say it's greater? Because it doesn't really matter that it's a true statement that there was a 30% chance of rain. It was the most beautiful day of the year yesterday at my house. That's a greater reality than what was forecast. It doesn't really matter that it was, you know, it's only 10 or 17 miles, depending on which slide you were looking at there, but it is 17. It doesn't matter that it's only 17 miles from my house to my work. The greater reality is it doesn't take me 17 minutes to get to work. Some mornings it takes me an hour or almost an hour. That's a greater reality than the mileage. It doesn't matter that I'm asking $3,200. I could be asking $32,000 because at this point, the market value for my car appears to be $2,500. All right, that's a greater reality than the reality of whatever I'm asking on Craigslist. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about these kinds of statements in Scripture where there is a reality and a transition and a greater reality. We're going to look at those over the next four weeks. And today, we're going to jump to Luke chapter 22. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke 22. We spent some time there last week leading up to kind of the story leading up to Easter and a conversation between Jesus and Peter. And I know we've had a couple of videos in a row in the last few minutes, but while you're turning there... Luke is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book of the New Testament. Uh, While you're turning there, turn your attention back to the screen. One more video, and then we'll talk for a little while. Jesus, I have decided to give you this. Really? Yeah. You know whoever sits here makes all the decisions, right? I know, and I'm always making decisions, but you make the perfect decisions, so you just sit right down and start making them. Wow, I'm honored. I mean... This feels great. Kathleen, guess what? I just got my new credit card. It's time to go shopping. Oh, really? I thought your husband and you were going to pay off debt. Oh, yeah. I mean, money's kind of tight, but I figured he doesn't have to know about it. So do you want to go with me? No. (laughs) No? 
why? Uh, what I mean is, uh, I don't know. Um, so let me check my schedule, and then I'll get back to you. Okay, yeah, give me a call. Okay. Kat, what's going on? What do you mean? Well, I'm kind of one cheek in it here. Look, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. You wanted me to sit here, right? Well, of course. And whoever sits here makes all the decisions? Right. So what's the problem? Uh, there's not a problem. I just, I don't know what I was thinking. Really, please, here, sit down. As long as you're sure. I'm sure. Okay, okay. so let's start over. Okay. All right. Kat, I noticed that you've been losing your temper a lot lately. Right. So, okay, Jesus, you know what? I know what you're going to say, but um, see, you, do? you don't know the whole situation, you know? Oh, I, well, all I'm saying is that your attitude is a decision. Yes, of course, but I have a lot going on right now. Well, I know you're under a lot of pressure. Pressure? Jesus, you don't understand pressure, okay? This I, isn't working, Kat. What? We can't both sit on the seat. It's either me or it's you. Okay, I know. You know, I, just, I didn't think it was going to be this hard, but here, just take it. No, I'm not going to take it. You have to give it to me. Okay, here. Kathleen, make a choice. I can't. You just did. If you got your Bibles, Luke chapter 22. We're going to be in verse 41 and 42. This is, again, kind of right before Jesus goes to the cross and he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has a few of the disciples he's called with him, and he's there in that place. And I want us to read these two verses together. This is what it says in Luke 22. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. If you kind of read ahead in books, like you just skip to the end to see what's happening, you, you realize that that yet is important to us because we just talked about that in our flip side analogies, that there's a reality, there's a transition word, and there's a greater Reality, And so what we want to look at here is we want to kind of see what Jesus was doing and then how we kind of apply that to our lives. Jesus is praying here and he is expressing his desire and what he's pointing his attention towards is the cup of suffering and pain and the cross that's before him. So he's saying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup of pain, suffering and the cross away from me. Yet, not my will, yours be done. And so this is an incredibly powerful prayer example here because he's saying there is a reality. The reality is that I desire not to have to do this. Okay? Transition word, yet, but, nevertheless, depending on what, tra what translation of the Bible that you're reading. And then there is a greater reality, at least in the mind of Jesus and the way he's praying, to say, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is doing to his father what my children do to me. I say, hey, go and clean your room. And they say, Father, if you are willing, can you please take this cup of cleaning my room away from me? And I've never yet heard them say, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Right? Jesus is saying here to his Father, to the Heavenly Father, in my humanity. This is like the, one of the most powerful moments of Christ's humanity in all of the scriptures. In my humanity, knowing what is before me, I would choose not to have to take and drink this cup of suffering and pain that's right out in front of me. Yet, greater reality, reality over here is my desire to avoid this, greater reality, I am submitting myself to what the Father's will is. Greater reality in the mind of Jesus. And what this shows us about Jesus and what I think this says to us in the way that we live is that his submitted prayer shows a submitted heart. 
His submitted prayer shows a submitted heart. He's taking his desires and his wills and saying, I would prefer not to do this. And he is submitting those things, his desires to the will and the desire of the father. His submitted prayer here shows a submitted heart. The book of Hebrews, if you got your Bible, just keep flipping from the right back to the left until you get to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5 is another place that this is kind of spelled out for us. In Hebrews chapter 5, we see a little about Jesus and the roles that he plays in history and in humanity here. And in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, there is a reference to the prayer and the prayers that Jesus prayed that we just read in some of the other Gospels, how those prayers are related to us. And here's what it says in Hebrews 5 verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. His prayers, he, he, he cried out passionate, fervent, earnest prayers to the Father. What we just read in Luke 22, let this pass from me. Take it away from me if you can, please God. But his prayers were heard because of his reverent submission. The word submission gets us in a lot of trouble. I think for most of us, submission gets us in a lot of trouble. Reverent submission that's used here can be defined like you would think it would be defined. Here's what this says. It says reverent submission is submitting or obeying to a higher authority out of respect for them and or their position over you. Now, submission gets us in trouble because we think submission is kind of this passive experience. We think that submission implies weakness. But submission is not a passive experience at all. And so if you have this example here, this definition, and you just think about your own life. We all work a job. Most of us work a job. And on your job, there is probably someone that has a higher level of authority than you. Now, you may be pretty high up in your company, but there's probably someone that has a higher level of authority than you. And so for one of two reasons, you are called then to submit to their authority. The first reason being their position. The second reason might apply. It might not, but it still calls for submission. And that would be that you respect them because they have authority over you. Right. Because submission is not about weakness. Submission is about position. I'm going to say that again because that's tweet worthy. Okay, submission is not about weakness. Submission is about position. People that submit understand the flow of authority. People that don't submit don't understand authority. And I would say that most people that can't submit will never fully gain the authority that they crave. Because to lead, I think you have to serve. I think that's a scriptural mandate. Whoever wants to be first must be last. Jesus said that. And so I think when we're looking at our lives and we want maybe authority in our lives, I think the quickest way for you to demonstrate that you are capable of handling authority is to submit to the authority in your life. Because we struggle with that. I mean, most of us genuinely struggle with the whole idea of submission. When we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, that it says, Submit yourselves one to another out of reverence for Christ. I want you to evaluate the relationships in your life right now. Do you submit yourselves one to another? There's no clause there. There's no kind of qualifier of who we submit to. It just says, submit yourselves one to another. We're supposed to be mutually submitted to the people in our lives. That passage continues on and says to wives that they are to submit to their husbands. 
That passage continues on and says to husbands that they're to love their wives, which is a similar equation here. Love their wives as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He washed the feet of his disciples. He went to the cross out of his love for, he gave up his own desires out of his love for the coming church. So we see in Jesus Christ that he submitted to the will of the Father. We see in the example of Ephesians that we are called to submit to one another. We see that wives and husbands are supposed to be mutually submissive to one another, not because either or both are weaker than the other, but because we understand positions of authority. Submission is not about weakness. Position is not about strength. Submission is about position. It's understanding who we are and whose authority I live under. Submission is not a passive experience. If you've ever been in a submitted type of relationship, then you understand that it is very, it's a very engaging, active kind of action, activity, because you are constantly having to evaluate your own desires and your own strengths and trying to find ways to fit that in and to submit into the person or place or activity that you're supposed to submit to. That was a lot of weird ways that I could have said that right there. But it's this constant struggle, this constant tension, and we are called to kind of live in this tension. To live in this tension of trying to find ways to continually be submitted to the will of the Father and to those who have authority over us. We see Jesus praying this and praying a prayer of submission in the Garden of Gethsemane, and his prayer of submission shows his submitted heart. We see in Hebrews chapter 5 that it's referenced what he was praying, how he was praying, and understanding that he was heard by the Father because of his reverent submission to the will of the Father. But this is not the first time that we actually see this principle at work in the Gospels. The book of Matthew, early in the book of Matthew, there is an, there's the first sermon of Jesus Christ. First sermons are funny. You ever sat in a service where somebody was preaching their first sermon? Today is not my first, so please don't raise your hand. First sermons are funny. I remember my first sermon. You know why first sermons are funny? Because you're never sure if you're actually going to get to preach ever again. And so what you do is you take everything that you know about God and the Bible, and you put that into that sermon. It doesn't matter if the topic is how to get to heaven. You're going to talk about teenage pregnancy and how to stay away from drugs and alcohol and how to be submitted on your job. Like you're going to honor your father and mother. Like you're, you're coming up with every possible thing you know about the Bible and God. And you're just kind of throwing it up against the wall and seeing what sticks. And then you look at it and you go, wow, they told me I have 30 minutes to speak. And you time it out and it's, it's nine minutes. <laughs> and you're like, I've got 21 minutes to fill. And so you just start making stuff up about God in the Bible that you don't even believe. Like if you ever ask any preacher, hey, can I listen to your first sermon? They'll be like, no. No, no, no. I don't believe half of what I said that day. First sermons are funny. And Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the first sermon of Jesus. Now, I don't think he said anything he didn't believe. But he does give to us a lot of material. He gives to us a ton of stuff in Matthew 5, 6, and seven. Matthew chapter five, he starts with the Beatitudes. He starts with these foundational things about our heart and the way that we live and the inside of who we are and what should be formed in us. He continues on and he comes out of that and he starts talking about, hey, you've heard it said, don't kill a guy. I'm saying don't even get mad at him. He's saying, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm saying don't even look at a woman. Like, don't even just look at him. That'll just get you in trouble yourself, right? He kind of goes from there and he starts talking about giving to the poor. After he starts talking about giving to the poor, then he starts talking about prayer. Then he starts talking about fasting. 
Then he starts talking about all heaven and what his role is in all of this. And then he starts talking about how foundational we should kind of build our lives on the, the secure foundation of good, solid biblical teaching. Right in the middle of that passage where he gives us so much to think about in Matthew chapter 6, he teaches about prayer. It's a prayer that a lot of you have probably prayed. You may have recited it in school. You may have recited it in some other kind of formal type function. You may pray this often. I don't know. But in Matthew chapter 6, we read the Lord's Prayer. This is beginning in verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So Jesus is teaching us how to pray. He's teaching those who are listening to him that day and by extension us today as followers of Jesus Christ and those who are trying to check him out like there were that day, just people listening and attempting to kind of figure, do I believe what this new teacher is teaching to me? And he's teaching them how to pray. And I want you to leave this up on the screen right here for just a moment, guys. Here's the formula that he gives us for how to pray. You start with, who am I praying to? I'm praying to God, right? And what he says to us is that we shouldn't have to just look at God as this formal, disconnected entity somewhere apart from us. But he uses the word father here. In Mark, I believe it's chapter 11, the same kind of prayer is recited again. And in that passage, the word Abba is used. So maybe you've heard the phrase Abba, Father. This is a word that would be translated in English almost to the word daddy. So in first century Judaism, this isn't a crazy idea that we would look to Jehovah God, who we didn't even utter his name in the Old Testament. And we would pray to that same being, that same deity. And we would say, Daddy, I want to pray here. I want to talk to you about some stuff. Abba. Father, so we understand that we're praying to a very personal God who understands us and has the ability to have intimate relationship with us. But when we pray to him, we understand that he's in heaven. We understand that this personal being that we are communicating with has a different place, a different position and a different perspective than we do. He's not in the same place we are. He is in heaven. So this personal, deep, deeply relational God is in heaven. He created the heavens and the earth. And then after we pray that, we talk about how holy and hallowed and lifted up and worshipped and glorified his name should be. So we're reverting back to what we know that he is not just relational, but he's also holy and someone we shouldn't take for granted. And then after we look at that, we say, hey, the kingdom, the rule and the reign... Right. Who you are, your will that's being done already in heaven. We want that to come to earth. So the rule and reign, the kingdom that you're establishing in heaven, we want that same thing to come down to earth. So we are, again, kind of calling down and calling on him who's in heaven to do his will and his way and establish his kingdom, which is already happening there. Bring that to this place. So what's happening on earth as it is in heaven. And then we get to pray about our stuff. Do you follow that formula? Do I follow that formula? When we pray, do we understand we're praying to a relational God? Do we understand that we're praying to a God with a different perspective than we are, who we're sitting there looking at the checkbook and we only see the dollars and the dimes? Or maybe the dime's too much money this month. Maybe you've only got nickels left. I don't know. Right? Do we understand that we're praying to a very personal yet holy 
worthy of worship God? Do we pray before we give him our list of stuff? Do we pray and say, hey, listen, I've got some stuff I'm about to talk to you about here in just a moment. I've got some things I really need to kind of unload to you. But before I get there, I want to make sure that you know that I'm, I'm, I'm in. I want your kingdom. I want your will on earth and in my life. And out of that context, daddy, father, God in heaven. Here's some things that I need to make sure you know that I desire. I desire bread for today. Not only that, I also desire that I would be able to forgive those who owe me just as my debts have been forgiven. I would also pray that you would keep me from temptation and deliver me from the evil one. But all of that, all of my desires are couched in an understanding that I am coming to you knowing who you are. And that the supreme part of the prayer is not my to-do list. The supreme part of the prayer is who you are. That's the formula that Jesus starts in his very first sermon to establish for us. He says, listen, there is a place in prayer for you to pray about your desires. There's a place in prayer for you to talk about the things that you want. But you can't lead with that. You got to lead with who he is. You got to lead with an understanding of who you're talking to. Right? You got to lead with the understanding that he's personal and holy. And he has a will and a plan. And he has the perspective to see that plan when I can't see it in the midst of my everyday life sometimes. That's how Jesus established it in his first sermon. And then at the end of his life, just before he was arrested, just before he went and stood trial, just before he went to the cross, just before he died, he lived that prayer out by expressing desires. But the greater reality of his prayer was not my will. Your will be done. Today's title, if you've been reading in the top of your worship guide left side there, is Have It Your Way. I think that was a slogan from Burger King, which makes the best hamburgers in the world. Questionable, you think so? I'll, I'll meet you in the lobby afterwards. Have it your way. Here's what prayer calls us into. It calls us into this tension. Life calls us into this tension. Relationship with God calls us into this tension. That says, do I get to have it your way? Or do I trust God enough to say, God, have it your way? It's the flip side. It's the same pillow. Just one side's maybe not been exposed to you yet. Have it your way. Or to say to God, God, have it your way. I trust you with my life. I don't boast in my own wisdom, thinking that I've got it all figured out. I don't boast in my own strength, thinking that I'm strong enough to get me out of this thing. I trust you, Jesus, with my life. 
We're left in this tension of attempting to figure out how to live with our reality, our desires, our will, our hopes, and the greater reality of the will and the plan of God. Jesus got it right. We know that he got it right because he went to the cross and he hung there and he died so that you and I could have the ability to have relationship with the Father. And to pray prayers like he modeled for us and to submit ourselves and our will and our desires to the Father. Hopefully in a way that we can look to God and say, I trust you enough to allow you to have it your way in my life. His submitted prayer showed his submitted heart. The question for me is, do I trust God enough to pray submitted prayers? Do I trust God enough to pray submitted prayers? Because, man, I can, I can talk a really good game. But in my everyday life, do I trust him enough to pray submitted prayers? I didn't say weak prayers. I didn't say prayers that don't matter because I'm sure that there are some of you like me who were raised in this and now you're beginning to say, yeah, but see, that's what I thought. Does prayer even matter? Like if God's just going to have his way anyway, if God's will is the ultimate thing anyway, does it even matter if I pray? Yes, it matters if you pray. Why does it matter if I pray? Because if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe that prayer is the constant practice of submission. Prayer is the constant practice of submission. It allows me the opportunity to express my desires, my thoughts, my hopes, my dreams, my wills for my life and the lives around me. And transition that to say, not my will, your will be done. And the more that I submit to the Father, you know what's crazy? And this is not just a preacher statement, okay? What's crazy, the more that I submit myself to the Father, this tension that we talked about, that do I get to have it my way or do I say to God, you can have it your way? Like, here's, here's how that tension looks. The more that I submit myself to the Father, the answer to both of those questions is yes. Like, not in the crazy way that it's like, are there more boys or girls in this room? Yes. Like, that doesn't make sense. But the understanding that I say, I can have it my way, And God has it his way as I continue to submit my will to the will of the Father. Like I continue to submit my will to the Father, we both get to have our way. Because God's way is the best way. God's way is the right way for me. Yeah, Jesus wanted to avoid pain and suffering, but if he avoided pain and suffering, he would have avoided the cross and none of us would have had hope. But the plan of God was able to reign because the submitted prayer of Jesus showed his submitted heart. I talked about our struggle with submission. I think that if we struggle with submitted prayers, we might, even stronger, we probably have submission issues in our heart. The times in my life when I struggle to pray submitted prayers line up perfectly with where I'm struggling to be submitted in life. 
And so praying submitted prayers is not just for Jesus, it's also for me and you. And I believe that our ability to pray submitted prayers shows our submitted hearts. And our inability to pray submitted prayers shows our inability to have submitted hearts. And it could be for a lot of reasons. Maybe we don't understand authority. Maybe we boast in our own wisdom or strength that we sang about. Submitted prayers show submitted hearts. So I can say that I am submitted to my boss, but you won't know how submitted I am until he asks me to do something I don't want to do that wasn't my idea. We sit in a meeting and I pitch my idea, and after some discussion, or maybe not after discussion, maybe it's very authoritative, dictatorial, we're doing it the other way, you will see my act of submission in whether or not and how I carry out that directive. That reveals my submission. I can say that I am submitted to God, but you won't know how submitted I am until I express my desires and my will to God, submit to His will and way, and watch the prayers line up more with His will than my desire. That's when you get to see how submitted I am to God. Let me give you a practical example before we close. In 2009, I've talked about this a couple of times before. Spring of 2009, my mom was having some stomach pain. She went to the doctor and they took her gallbladder out. Don't know why. What had nothing to do with her gallbladder. Went back to the doctor. They were going to take her appendix out. The next thing they were going to do was just go do surgery, but they decided to run one more test. And in that procedure, they found something they weren't sure about. And they decided they were going to go in and kind of do a colonoscopy and check. And when they did, they found cancer in her colon. One small tumor, no big deal. Going to go in, get it, not a problem. That was on Friday afternoon. We had to wait until Monday morning for the surgery, all weekend. We just wrestled and prayed and believed and hoped, dreamed. Monday morning, the surgery is supposed to take about five hours, but within the first hour, the doctor comes out to get us. We go into this small room. And the doctor says, it's not good. We thought it was one tumor. It's everywhere. Stage four. And we were floored. My mom was young. My mom got married as a sophomore in high school. Any sophomore in high school in the room that feel like they're ready to get married? You're not. My mom told me she wasn't. Got married, had me as a teenager a couple years later. Had my brother a few years after that. And she talks about the fact that we kind of grew up together. She was so young. She just said, and I, we just kind of grew up together. My mom got cancer when she was 46. Stage four, grim report. Doctors gave us very ch- little chance of hope. But we knew how to pray. And we prayed and believed. I probably, between... Spring of 2009 and spring of 2011, I probably prayed like 50,000 prayers for my mom. And I believe that some of those prayers included this phrase, God, but your will be done. You know what I was praying though? God, let your will be that my mom gets healed. That's okay. And I prayed and I believed and I hoped. And just a little over a month ago, we celebrated the two-year 
anniversary, if that's the word for it, of her passing. Passed away March the 2nd of 2011. And mom was, I guess, a little unlucky in that she had a husband and two sons who were preachers. And so we did her funeral. And I got the opportunity to stand at her funeral and speak. And I, I, as I kind of prepared, I, I mean, what do you say? A lot of the people in the room had prayed just like we had prayed. A lot of people in the room had faith like we had faith, and yet there she laid. And not that I said anything super special, but here's where I landed that night. And here's where I kind of live today. I believe that we are allowed to grieve. I believe we're allowed to cry and get angry. I believe we're allowed to question and ask God, why so young? Why? I mean, doesn't make any sense to us. My wife and I have four children. My mom never met the youngest. The third, she knew just he was really small at that point. Man, why? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't figure all that out. And so as I tried to figure out, what do you say to a bunch of people that prayed and believed that God would heal? She wasn't healed. And I had people tell me, listen, your mom is healed. She's in heaven. And I know that and I believe that, but that's not what I was praying. I was praying that God would heal her here so she could meet all of her grandchildren. And she could come and visit us on weekends and sit in rooms like this and listen to me preach and tell me what I got wrong at lunch. Right? And to help cook turkey on Thanksgiving and to give out gifts on Christmas. And that's what I was praying. Not that she would be healed in heaven. I was praying, God, my desire is that the cup of her pain and suffering would be over here. And I did pray, God, let your will be done. And here's what I said at her funeral. And here's what I think this looks like for me and you today. I think God allows and loves because he gave, gave us the emotion we experienced to have emotion and to question and to wonder and to cry and to be upset. And I've experienced every single one of those to the nth degree, I can promise you. But if I would have walked away from my faith, here's what it would have said to you. That my faith was only as strong as the prayers that got answered the way I wanted them answered. It would have meant that if I walked away from my faith in that moment, that my faith is only as strong as me getting my way. And my mama taught me better than that. And so today, my challenge for you is that we pray submitted prayers, not weak prayers, not prayers that don't matter. Not passive experience prayers. That what Hebrews claims about the prayers of Jesus is that we fiercely, earnestly cry out to the Father with our desires. But ultimately we leave it to the sovereignty of God. For his will and his ways to rule and reign in our lives and the lives of those around us. And we say, God, this is what I desire. This is what I want. Yet. But, nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. 
Submitted prayers show submitted hearts. I want to ask our host to prepare to wait on you with communion today as the band comes. We're taking communion today in response to what we've heard. We're taking communion today just as Jesus did with his disciples. We took communion earlier with the band and our children's workers who wouldn't have the opportunity to take now. And here's what I said to them that I I was confronted with a little bit further this week. Jesus took communion with his disciples before the cross. So as he's talking about his broken body and his blood spilling out, they're trying to imagine that. They don't understand where the story's headed. You and I take communion today looking back at the cross. We see him hanging there. But what we celebrated last week is that he didn't stay there. But the resurrection power of Jesus Christ says to all of us that there's a second chance at life. And so today as we take part in communion, as we take these elements, we're going to hold them in our hand until everyone's been served. And I'll come back and we'll take communion together. But what we are saying, what we are doing is we're saying, I get to hold these elements in light of the cross because in the garden, Jesus submitted to the Father's will. And so today, communion's not just elements. It's not just a wafer and it's not just a cup of juice. Communion is a commitment on my part to pray submitted prayers that reveal my submitted heart. I'm going to pray. They'll distribute the elements as the band leads us. And I'm going to ask you to hold the elements and not take take the elements at all until we come back to do that together in just a moment. God, we thank you so much for the example of your son and the prayer that he prayed, the teachings on prayer that he gave, your scripture that reveals it, the songs we've sung today that further the truth in our lives. God, let our faith be stronger than just the answered prayers that go our way. Let our faith be submitted and grounded in reverent submission to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he prayed, submitted prayers that revealed his submitted heart. And I get that he's 100% God while being 100% human. And we're just 100% human. But God, as we leave this place today, I pray for the strength and the ability to trust you enough to submit to your will. God, I pray that we would pray earnest and fervent and passionate prayers to you. To a God who knows us and makes himself available to us in a very intimate way. But God, in the course of expressing our desires and our will, our wants, would you help us to find the yet. Help us to find the nevertheless to get to the place where we submit to your not because we're weak, 
but because we understand position. We understand authority. And we understand that submitting is sometimes the strongest thing we can do. Let us live that out every single day. In Jesus' name we pray.